really well what we're going to be talking about today. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. If you're turning there, actually, if you, if you don't have your own Bible, please grab the one that's in the, the chair in front of you. It should be on page 973, the passage that we're looking at today. Uh, and that's not an accident. You may notice that this is part of the passage that we looked at last week. Uh, Galatians 2, 15 through 21 is really the beating heart of this letter. Everything else that Paul says flows out of these passages, of these verses. And so, um, and because they're so important, I didn't cover all of it last week. And I wanted to come back and take a second look again this week. Paul says something so important here. Uh, and he says it so quickly that we're prone to miss it if we don't slow down and take a closer look. And so, uh, I know that the bulletin on the screen say uh, verses 17 through 21, and that's where we'll find uh, that's where we're going to spend most of our time, particularly uh, in verse 20. But I'm going to actually start reading in verse 15 so that we have some context. Let's give our attention to God's word. Paul writes, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. We can give him our thanks. And while the grass withers and the flowers may fade... The word of our God stands forever. So let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, would you help us to understand the truth, uh, the magnitude of what is in front of us, so that we may know better how to live for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Last week, we talked about this fancy Bible word, justification. And we even said that if you're going to understand Christianity, you have to, you must understand justification. If you don't understand justification, you don't understand Christianity. Remember, justification, I said it was a legal word. It's a word that's used in the courtroom. 
It was the first century version of not guilty. Uh, Someone reminded me last week that uh, an easy way to remember the word justified, uh, what the word justified means in Christianity is that uh, if, if God has justified you, then it means he looks at you or looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. We could even go further, just as if I'd done everything right. That's justification. Uh, I argued last week that just about every single one of us, I haven't met a person yet, that person may be out there, but that every single one of us, whether we're a rule follower or a rule bender or a rule breaker, whether we're religious, whether we're not religious, we all want to answer the question, how can I be right? How may I be accepted? And Paul answers that question with justification, right? That we are justified, we are accepted by God, not based on our best performance, but based on Jesus' best performance. That's justification. But that leads to a troubling concern. I remember a, a friend of mine, an older friend, he put it this way. He voiced it this way. He said, um, Kevin, if we keep talking about all this grace, which is what justification is, God does it, we don't do it. God does what we don't do. He said, Kevin, if we keep talking about all this grace, then people won't do what they're supposed to. And you heard it in Jay's illustration, which I think was perfect, right? What's to keep people from being bad people when they receive grace, right? If we just receive grace and there's no expectation on our part, if it's all of Jesus and none of me, then how do, how do we get people to do what they're supposed to? And that's an age-old question. It's a battle that Paul fought a few times in the New Testament. Romans 6 is one of those places. He anticipates it here in verse 17. He, he anticipates the charge coming from his opponents that, well, if you're saved by grace, if, if you're justified by faith in Jesus, then what happens when you sin? Does that make Jesus a servant of sin? Let's see how Paul phrases the question. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? In other words, if Jesus is the one who justifies me, is it Jesus' fault that I keep on sinning? And you see Paul's answer there. He actually answers in a negative and a positive way. His negative answer is certainly not. Not no, but heck no. My sin is not Jesus' fault. He goes on, he says, if I go on to rebuild what I tore down, he could mean if I, if I go back to trying to build my own self-righteousness on the law, he could mean if I go back to the life of sin that I used to, if I go try to rebuild that. But either way, the point is clear. If I go back and rebuild what I tore down, I just prove myself to be the transgressor. It's not Jesus' fault that I go on sinning. It's my fault. Jesus isn't the problem. I am. 
But then that still leaves us with the question, well, then how are we supposed to live? Or as my friend might have put it, well, then what makes me do the things I'm supposed to do? And this is where Paul's positive answer comes in. If I don't have to justify myself, then what drives me? What keeps me moving forward? And this is where Paul, in verses 19 and 20, takes us one level deeper. Right? And so we're going to go... We're going to go down a little bit, and, and this, is going to, this is going to expand, uh, you know, be, be ready for some brain stretching, for, to use that imagination, because what Paul does next really doesn't make sense to us on the face of it. In fact, even as we study it, I mean, there, there are whole books written on this topic, okay? So I want you to imagine... Uh, the Christian life or salvation in, in three phases of grace. All right, We talked about justification. And that would be the beginning of the Christian life, where God accepts me as righteous. Not because I am righteous, but because Jesus is. So that's justification. And then there's sanctification, right? And that's where God grows me in his grace and holiness. That's where I, he, by the power of his spirit, causes me to look more and more like Jesus, okay? That's the life we live. And then there's glorification. And we could call that the, the destination of grace. That one day, someday, God will bring me all the way home. And when I see him face to face, I will be like him, right? So that... If you want to picture the Christian life in those three big categories or three phases, what is it that's underneath all three of those? What powers all three of those phases of grace, if we want to talk about it in that way? And this is what's called union with Christ. This living relationship, living connection that I have to Jesus. It's what... Paul explains so succinctly, or says so succinctly in verse 20. He, Paul never uses the word Christian. That word, in fact, is hardly ever used in the New Testament at all. But the, word, the, the, what Paul, the way that Paul describes someone who has a relationship with Jesus over 170 times is some version of the phrase, in Christ. Simply put, Union with Christ means that I am in Jesus. I am vitally connected to him. So much so that, that Paul could say, I am in him. And that Jesus is in me. Isn't that weird? Totally, like, that's, that's mind-blowing. It doesn't make sense but that is how the New Testament conceives of our relationship with God. Everything that we have comes to us because we are united to Christ. Period. You want to be justified? You have to be united to Christ. You want to be adopted, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks? You have to be united to Christ. You want to grow in Christ-likeness? You've got to be united to Christ. You want to see God when you die? You have to be united to Christ. All of it comes through our union with Christ. For his argument right here, here's how Paul puts it in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That'd be a verse to memorize right there. Here's what I think Paul is saying. He says, he's saying that the power to live for God is not found in keeping the law. The power to live for God is not found in keeping the law, but in being united to his son. That's where the power for the Christian life is found. That's, that's what makes us do the things we're supposed to, as my friend would put it. Because we are united to Christ. We're going to talk more about the law in the weeks to come. Because we still ask the question, what purpose does the law serve? But let's break this statement down into its two parts here. First... I died to the law when I was crucified with Christ. And then second, Christ now lives in me, so I have the power to live for him. My death in Jesus' death, his life empowers my life. United to Jesus in death and in life. So let's look at verse 19. Paul writes, through the law, I died to the law. God's law makes demands on your life. It makes demands on my life, right? It tells me what is good. It tells me what is right. It tells me what is true. And conversely, it tells me what is evil, what is wrong, what's false. And what the law says is do or die. And again and again... And again, I find that I cannot do. In fact, sometimes I don't even want to do. I look at my creator and my king. I want you to imagine, I realize that we're not, uh, we don't live in a monarchy. But just imagine that you did, because you actually do. (laughs) God is king. Imagine, imagine... Walking into the throne room. And the king saying, hey, here's how it's going to go. This is, this is what I need you to do. Here's how, here's how you're going to follow. And you said, no. You actually don't have to imagine that uh, if you have children, because it happens all the time. Right? Little servants walk into the kitchen all the time, and they say, no. Right? Um, no, I'm going to do it my way. That's what our first parents said in the garden. That's what's in our hearts. That's the tune that we sing. I'm going to do it my way. And so what the law says then to me is, then you'll die. The law makes demands, and I don't follow those demands. And so I'm liable to the law's penalty, which is death. But then... God himself comes and he answers the law's demand for me. He walks according to the law completely. He never once tells his father, no. Not my will, but your will be done, is what he says repeatedly. And then he dies the death that I deserve. And what that means, if he dies, if, if he takes the penalty of the law on himself and I'm united to him, you know what that means? 
the penalty for the law is passed. It has, it has already, the sentence has already been executed. There's no, there's no death left for me. I am dead to the law. The law has no claim on me anymore because all its demands have been answered in Jesus. How is that possible? I wanted to read a quote for you. It's a, it's a longer quote, uh, so I hope you'll bear with me. It's from a book by Johnny Erickson Tata, When God Weeps. She goes through the life of Jesus and talks about how his life was basically a steadily downward progression of suffering leading to the point of his death. And she even chronicles the last few hours of his life, his, his arrest, his trial. But we're going to pick it up uh, on Calvary. Up you go. They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but around his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, he must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now arouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt even the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The sun does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk you who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents? Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, Buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, performed terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. 
disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this. But the divine pair have an agreement. And the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks drowning into raw liquid sin. Yahweh's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned it. The sun endured it. The Spirit enabled him. The Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. Jesus becomes sin for us. So that in him, we would become the righteousness of God. And so that means all of those things that were said about Jesus, that were true of me, they were nailed to the cross. This is what the old hymn says. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ. And if I'm crucified with Christ, then that means I'm dead. Or the old me is dead. Which means then I can finally live for God. John Calvin put it this way, engrafted into the death of Christ, we derive from it a secret energy as the twig does from the root. You see, Christianity doesn't just believe that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. We actually believe that our debt is paid because we are in living union with the one who paid it. We are connected to him by the power of the Spirit So that whatever is true of him is also true of me and vice versa. What does that mean for you and me? It means, as Paul says in Romans 6, that I'm no longer enslaved to sin. Sin is not my master. My lust and my temptations, they do not have the final say. I do not have to respond to them. I am free. But if I am dead then why am I still alive? And that's what Paul says next. That I live now because Christ lives in me. Look again at verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, 
In other words, in this body, right? It's still me. I'm still Kevin. It's still my personality, still my temperament, still my gifts. It's still me. But there's now a power at work within me. The life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's gone and the new has come. If I've died with Jesus in his death, I am resurrected with Jesus in his resurrection. That means that every person who has ever believed in Jesus, right, we don't, we're not waiting one day, someday for a resurrection. That will come, a physical re- resurrection. But right now, we have been resurrected to new life. We are given new life in Christ. What in the world? And that's, that's the power source of Christian living. How in the world do I wrap my mind around that? Whole books have been written on this subject. And so I'm not going to explain it in ten minutes. But one helpful book that I would recommend to you, highly recommend to you, is a book by Rankin Wilburn called Union with Christ. Rankin uh, uses this illustration that, that was helpful to help me understand uh, because I like superheroes. All right, so think about the difference between Batman and Spider-Man. What is it that makes Batman a superhero? Money. That's pretty much it, right? He's got lots of money. If, if Bruce Wayne were not a billionaire, he would not be a superhero, right? He, would, he, he wouldn't have all of the cool gadgets and cars and contraptions that make him do Batman things. But what is it that makes Spider-Man a superhero? He was bitten by a radioactive spider who injected him with a source of power from within. Right? Spider-Man, depending on your version of Spider-Man, some of them do have web shooters. But even still, Spider-Man has powers that come from within. It's not all external like Batman. It's internal, right? We have this power that comes from within. This means you're not, if, if you're in Christ, you're not just different on the outside. In fact, you may be frustrated because you don't look very different on the outside. You don't feel very different on the outside. But you're totally transformed on the inside. What do you do with that? How does that work? Well, just a couple of thoughts, and then you guys can work the rest of it out in your growth groups this week. First, let this change the way that you think about the Christian life. Right? If you go to the the religion, uh, I think these sections are even close to each other in Born to Noble, like religion and self-help. Right? I don't know about you, I'm kind of a a, a relentless, like, self-improvement Guy, like I'm always looking for the book that's going to tell me how to organize my time in some wonderful way that makes everything easy. Um, hasn't happened yet. And they want a lot of money for those systems. Um, right? Don't think about the Christian life as some, okay, I've got to add some new gimmick. I've got to do some different thing. I've got to, I've got to perform this way in order to really make all this click and go. 
It's not about adding something else. It's about actually moving into your union with Christ more, into your relationship with Christ more. That's, that's, how, that's how we need to think about spiritual disciplines. Why do we pray? Why do we come to church? Why do we read the Bible? Again, we might be thinking about it in a Batman sort of way. like It's all external. These are just the things that I've got to do. But actually, I want you to change the way that you think about it. All of those spiritual disciplines are the means of drawing near to your father. They are, they are relationship strengtheners. I'm seeking to live in a closer relationship with God. And in that way, it's a lot like marriage. Right? In, on, in one sense, when, I'm, when I got married, right, the day that Rebecca and, and I said, I do to one another, we were married. We were husband and wife. It was a fundamental reality change. But in another sense, that new reality has to be lived into. You have to grow in that. Right? You, don't, you don't stay there at your wedding day. You ideally grow. You deepen that relationship. Right? And that involves knowledge, learning things. That involves your emotions, emotional engagement. And that involves your actions. You have to do things. Right? Go on dates, spend time together, etc., all of that, that's how you maintain a relationship. So there's a new reality, it's a fundamental change, and it's one that has to be lived into. It doesn't remain static, it grows over time. And that's really another thing. It takes time. Union with Christ, you have to walk in it. And, that, and, that, and, and Paul uses that, that verb a lot, the walk. What more mundane, boring sort of thing can you imagine than walking? What, but it's so simple, it's so ordinary, we just put one foot in front of the other. Here at Grace Fellowship, we talk about the gospel waltz, right? This three-step dance of the Christian life. We repent, we die, we die to our sin. We do, the, we do this every Sunday in worship, right? We take a time to repent. So that's step one. We repent, we believe, we hear again the gospel of what Jesus has done for us. So we live, and then the third step of the dance, we fight. We obey what Scripture commands. And if you've ever waltzed or danced, you just do those same three steps over and over and over again, right? And somehow we make progress in doing the same three things over and over again. We repent. We believe and we fight. And so, here's what all this means. You don't need something more. You need more of Jesus. You need to walk in closer and closer fellowship with him. That's where the power comes from. And even that begs a more fundamental question do you even want the relationship to begin with? That's what Jesus has come to do. He has come to give you a relationship with God. He's come to restore the relationship with God that we had at the beginning of time. But in order to do that dance, in order to live in union with Christ, you first have to answer the question, do I want that? Do I want to be in a living relationship with the God of heaven and earth?
it will cost you everything. As Paul says, right? the life I now live, it's not my life, it's, it's his life. My life has now been taken off of this trajectory and put on that trajectory. And at the same time, it cost you nothing. As the martyred missionary Jim Elliott would say, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. That's the promise of union with Christ. It's the, it's the offer of the gospel. Give up your life and find it anew in Jesus. And you will be satisfied forever. Let's pray.